Good morning. We are reading out of the book of Colossians, verse uh, 4 through 15, out of chapter 2 of Colossians, chapter 2, verses 4 through 15. If you're using the dark blue pew Bibles, it is on page 983. Colossians chapter 2, verses 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him in him. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let me pray for us once more. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it challenges us. We thank you for how it convicts us. We thank you for how it encourages us when we feel discouraged. We ask this morning as your word goes out that it would not return void, but that it would accomplish that which you purpose. And may your spirit lead us into greater obedience so that we would be more like your son, Jesus Christ, and to glory in him. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There is a Chinese idiom and a story that I remember. And this is the way that I remember it. There's this teacher who wants to give out an assignment. And whoever completes this assignment first will receive a reward. Now, the reward could be a piece of candy. It could be a gift certificate. It could be movie tickets. Use your imagination. So the, teachers, the teacher gives her students this instruction. Draw a snake, and whoever draws a snake first will get a reward. Now, there's one particular student named Flash. Now, we all know Flash. Flash is always the one who's quick to raise his hand whenever the teacher asks a question. What's five plus four? Me, 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 nine. Or when the teacher asks Jane, who's the third president of the United States? Flash is the one always whispering, Thomas Jefferson, Thomas Jefferson, right? We all know Flash. Flash is the know-it-all in the class. 
And so when he receives the instruction, draw a snake, he picks up his pencil and his paper, and his pencil begins to fly, and he begins to sketch out this snake. It has its scales, it has its forked tongue, it even has serpentine eyes. And when he's finished, he looks, and he sees that the class is still drawing their picture of a snake. And so he sits back thinking, well, I still have time. And he's looking at his picture, and he thinks, you know what would make this picture even better? Legs. If I could add legs to this snake. And so he adds legs to this particular snake. And as he finishes adding these legs, he looks up and he sees Jane going to the front of the classroom to put down her drawing of her snake. So Flash rushes up and they put down their drawings at the same time. The teacher examines both pictures and says, I'm sorry, Flash, but I think the prize goes to Jane because snakes don't have feet. And the thing is that when the student, when Flash added legs to this snake, it was no longer a snake. It's this idea that an addition of something changes its identity, that when we add something to something, it changes. When you add another wheel to a bicycle, it's no longer a bicycle, it becomes a tricycle. When you add another side to a square, it's no longer a square, it becomes a pentagon. When a couple goes out on a date and you add another person, it's no longer a date, it's third wheeling, right? Is that when you add something to something, it changes ultimately its identity. And when we add something to the gospel, it's no longer the gospel either. That we say that we need to believe in Jesus Christ and we also need to do works. The gospel is no longer faith in Christ alone through faith alone. It's faith in Christ plus works through works alone. And the gospel is no longer sufficient. It's no longer the gospel. We add a book to the Bible, say we also need to believe the Bible and something else. The the Bible is no longer sufficient. It changes what we believe. That when we add something to something, it changes its identity. And when you add something to the gospel, it changes the gospel as well. So what do we do when people say we need more than just faith in Jesus Christ? What do we do when people say you need to add on something to your faith? You need to do something a little extra in order to gain favor with God. How do we respond? Epaphras went to Rome looking for his old mentor, Paul, who, as usual, is in prison. He had just planted a church in Colossae, and he had an issue because these false teachers had infiltrated this church plant and said that not only did the Colossians need to believe in Christ, but they also need to follow the old Jewish laws. So he sought out his mentor, and Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, which is in our Bibles, titled Colossians. And we'll be looking specifically in the middle of this letter, which was already read for us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 4 to 15. And from this text, we'll see that there is a deception, that there is a lie that people want us to believe when people say we need more than just faith in Jesus. And then we'll also see a truth, a truth that we need to believe and a defense that we need to make. 
So we'll look at a deception, a truth, and a defense. So what is the deception? What is the lie? What is the untruth? The deception is this, that believing in Jesus simply is not enough. That faith in Christ is insufficient, that you need something more, that something extra is needed. And oftentimes, this may seem very plausible to us. Uh, Paul writes this in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. If you have the NIV, it will say the word deceive you with reasonable arguments. And the phrase plausible, reasonable arguments is this idea of logic. That if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. That it seems that there is a logic, that there is something that makes sense about this reasoning. Now think about this. When we say, put your faith in Christ, and Jesus Christ has forgiven you of all your sins, and you are no longer under the power of sin. And people might say, oh, man, that sounds too good to be true. Does that mean now I can do whatever I want? And so that's why people will say, no, not only do you need to believe in Jesus, you need to do something extra to gain God's favor. You need to do some more things. That faith in Christ is insufficient to gain the favor of God, but you need to do something to please him. And it seems logical, especially for those who are task-oriented, that faith in Christ enables us now to please the Lord in order to gain his favor. But then Paul elaborates on what is actually behind this false teaching. He believes this. Paul is teaching this, that the deception is believing in Jesus is not enough because what's more important? What is more important? It's to follow the rules. That you need to follow rules in addition to believing in Jesus because that is more important. And we see this in verse 8. Verse 8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elementary spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul is concerned that the Colossians are being taken captive by this particular teaching. This idea of being taken captive, it's as though someone has stolen your identity. Not only have they stolen your credit card number and your social security number, but they have also stolen your heart and your mind and plundered it. That these false teachers have taken it off far, far away. And there's some things that are associated with this particular teaching. He says in verse 8, this idea of philosophy, a system of thought. Now, there are a lot of philosophies in the first century. They, they consider Judaism as a type of philosophy, Plato, Aristotle. Now, Paul's not saying that those philosophies are wrong to ask the deeper questions of life, but it's the philosophy of this false teaching that is wrong. And what is characterized by this false teaching? Well, first, the false teachers taught people they taught believers that in order to please the Lord, you needed to also follow the Jewish laws. We see this in verse 8, according to human tradition. Not only did you need to believe in Christ, you needed to follow those old Jewish laws. You had to take Saturday off. You had to refrain from bacon or pulled pork. 
He had to celebrate the festivals, Passover, Feast of Booths, Feast of Trumpets, and so forth. And also, you had to observe circumcision. You had to be circumcised. That you had to follow all these extraneous laws as well. And the second element is this, according to the elemental spirits of the world. That the false teachers taught people that not only did you need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to follow this natural law, this worldly order that's characterized by this phrase, elemental spirits. Now, if you have an NIV or an NASB, it'll use the phrase elemental teaching or elemental forces because in the Greek, it only says elemental of the world. And you don't really know what is it referring to. But I think that Paul is trying to say that the false teaching is associated with following the worldly order, the elemental things, the ABCs, the one, two, threes. And the Greeks believed that the world was composed of four elements, water, earth, fire, air. Now, for those of you who are fans of Avatar, The Last Airbender, those should sound very familiar that the first century believed that these four elements composed the world. But there are also principles in this world that we try and abide by as well. As I think about my former workplace, there are three principles that all my coworkers seem to live by. Money, power, relationships. Now, I'm not saying that those are all the principles that we abide by in this world, but those are three that I remember. That's about the money, because money makes the world go round. That's about how much you're able to earn. That the more that you're able to get, the better off you'll be. After all, money buys food, money buys clothes, money buys shelter. And then you think about power. Not just like power, but influence. That you want to be influential. That you want to be able to influence people by the clothes you wear, the sports car that you drive, by the new phone that you have. It's all about being able to influence others. It's about the knowledge that you're able to gain. It's about influence. And it's about relationship. I mean, from high school on, that's all we tend to think about, is the desire to be desirable, the desire to be in relationship and who you're able to be with. Money, power, relationships, those are some of the elemental principles that many people try and live by in this world. And that if you are going to be successful, if you are going to please God, then you have to abide by these as well. But you know something? Rule following oftentimes highlights our inability to keep them, if you think about it. Right? Every time we try and pursue money, it seems like it'll never be enough. You always want another zero added to the end of your paycheck or to your savings account. You'll always need to gather more knowledge, buy more new clothes, buy new cars, buy new phones in order to be influential. And even relationships, there's always a desire for more. That even though you may be dating or married, that that honeymoon period eventually wears off. And what was so exciting now becomes a chore. I mean, think about it. We even tell our children to do certain things. When we give a child a snack, we ask the child, what do you say? Thank you. But then how often do we say thank you when we receive something? Or when you tell a child, don't call your sister stupid. 
and then you're driving to work the next day, and someone's driving dangerously, and you utter under your breath, stupid driver, right? Or when you see a child and you ask them, did you have another Halloween treat? And the child says, no, but are you lying? And you know, there's chocolate all over his face. Of course he's lying. Yet do you always tell the truth? Rule keeping, rule following, always highlights our inability to keep them, whatever rule, whatever principle that we set. And that is a deception that we believe because we are task-oriented people that we want to do something to earn something because nothing is ever free. So what is then the truth? What is the truth that we need to believe? The truth is this, that believing in Jesus is enough. That believing in Jesus Christ and what he has done for us on the cross and his resurrection is sufficient. There's no need for anything else. And Paul reminds us, and also Paul reminds the Colossians, that what Jesus has accomplished is enough. That you don't need anything extra. So what did Paul teach that Jesus accomplished? First, Jesus accomplished this idea of indwelling. Uh, we see this in verse 9 through 10. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Now this idea of indwelling, the idea of God dwelling with man, has been in the Old Testament. That the Spirit of God dwelt with man in the garden, then the Spirit of God dwelt in the tabernacle, then the Spirit of God dwelt in the temple, and then the Spirit of God dwelt in the Son incarnate, Jesus Christ. So that when Philip asked Jesus, show us the Father, Jesus replies, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. That they are so intricately tied. And now the Spirit of God dwells within us for those of us who are believers. And this idea of indwelling is not just this location that the Spirit of God is in us, but it's this idea of intermingling, this idea of becoming one. That whatever God wills and whatever God desires is something that we desire. And the best metaphor to describe this idea of indwelling is marriage. That a man and woman come together and they become one flesh. And not just only the physical intimacy, but even the emotional intimacy as well. For instance, before getting married, I had no interest in art. I never desired to go to an art museum. But then after getting married and learning that Josephine enjoys modern art, we go to modern art museums quite often. And as I've gone to more museums, I've enjoyed modern art as well. And likewise, Josephine has also embraced my love for Star Wars as well, which she had not prior. And not only is it the blending of interests, but then we're able to think, what does Josephine want? What would she do in this particular situation? And she would ask, what would Henry do in this situation? That when we are so intimate with the Lord and this idea of indwelling, we begin to ask, what would the Lord want me to do in this particular situation? What would he desire? That's this idea of indwelling. Not only has Jesus Christ accomplished indwelling through his death and resurrection, he's also accomplished salvation, that he has saved us. And we see this in verse 11 through 12. In him, you, 
or also you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now we see this idea of circumcision repeating many times here. Circumcision, for many of you who know, is this idea of cutting off the foreskin as a sign of the covenant the Abrahamic covenant between Israel and God in the Old Testament. Now, why is Paul bringing up this idea of circumcision? He's trying to say to the Colossians that these false teachers are teaching you to get physically circumcised, but I'm telling you, you've already been circumcised, a circumcision that is spiritual. Because he says here, made without hands in verse 11. That this isn't a physical circumcision, this is a spiritual circumcision. That when Jesus Christ died, the circumcision of Christ, you have been identified with him so that when he died, you died. And you died specifically to the power of sin over your life. That's this idea in verse 11, this putting off the body of flesh, that the power of sin now is broken. You are no longer under its beck and call. Now, just because the power of sin is broken doesn't mean that we still do not struggle with sin. It's because the presence of sin still remains, but the power of sin is broken, and that he has saved us from it. And the other sign that he gives us in verse 12 is the idea of baptism, that baptism signifies this identification with Christ in his death and resurrection. Now, Jesus has not only accomplished salvation, but he's also accomplished regeneration, that he has brought new life. And we see this in verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that God has given you new life. I heard this past week in a podcast that someone described that the state prior to faith in Christ is like a person drowning in water, waving his hands, looking for help, and that Jesus reaches down and saves him. But a pastor corrects him and says, no, 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 that's wrong. You were drowned. You were not drowning, you were drowned, meaning that you were dead, and that Jesus Christ had to come in and restore you to spiritual life this idea of being made alive together with him. Not only has Jesus accomplished this regeneration, but Jesus has also accomplished reconciliation. Uh, We see this in verse 14, and also verse 13. Having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. It's this idea that every time you've committed a transgression, every time you committed a wrongdoing, there's this book in heaven where there's a citation. Every lie you made, there's a citation. Every time you thought a lustful thought, there's a citation. Every time you said an unkind word to someone, there's another citation issued. And the penalty of even one citation against you because of your wrongdoing was an eternity apart from God. Yet when Jesus Christ died on the cross, that book of citations, that record of debt with his legal demands, received a stamp, forgiven. 
that every single lie that you've told, forgiven. Every lustful thought that is entering your mind, forgiven. Every unkind word that you said to someone, forgiven. That the bill came due at Calvary and was paid in full, not by your life, but by the life of Christ. Now we think about this, that Jesus Christ accomplished all these things and also more. We think about even how he accomplished victory over the spiritual forces of evil in verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And this idea of open shame is this triumphal parade through a Roman city where the general who won this victory would lead all these captives behind him. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, he led a procession with the spiritual forces of evil in tow, and Jesus being the conquering general. And Jesus has accomplished all these things. That sin that prevented God from dwelling in us, Jesus dealt with so the Spirit of God could dwell in us. The fact that the power of sin was over us, Jesus Christ broke. The fact that we were dead in our transgressions, Jesus made us alive. And the fact that we had a debt, a penalty for sin that we had to pay, Jesus paid. And the spiritual forces of evil that are over this world, Jesus won victory. And so then, why do we think that rule-keeping will help? Because Jesus has accomplished more than we could ever hope to do on our own. If we desire money, you are more rich than any person in this world. Because of your faith in Christ, you are now co-heirs with Christ. Then when he comes again to rule, you are his princes, you are his princesses, you are co-heirs with him. When you think about influence, Jesus Christ gave up his influence to become a servant, to serve us by dying on a cross so that we could serve others. When you think about being desirable, Jesus found you desirable so that he would come and save you from your sins and that he loved you, and he cared for you. Is that not enough? Is that not sufficient? It's more than enough. And that is the truth, that believing in Jesus is enough. It is sufficient. And we need to believe that. We need to trust in that. And that brings us to our third idea. What is the defense? And in order to defend against this idea that people say we need more than just faith in Christ, we need to believe that Jesus is enough. That everything that he's done for us on the cross, his resurrection, is sufficient. That we don't need any more. That we need to believe it. We need to trust in it. We need to have a strong faith in it. And I know, oftentimes we know something is true, but oftentimes it's hard to believe it. How do we bring what we know into our hearts? And I think one of the things that we need to be able to do is to believe that Jesus is enough is that we need to invite accountability in our lives. We need to invite others into our lives to encourage us, to exhort us, to encourage us. I mean, we see this in verse 5. 
Paul writes this, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. That the Colossians were not alone. They had Paul, who was providing the accountability and the exhortation to continue to believe that Jesus is enough. Now we see this phrase in verse 5, in spirit. And we think, oh, was, does that mean that the ghost of Paul was amongst the Colossians as he was in Rome? No, that's not what it means. This idea in spirit, I know <clears throat> not to rub salt into a wound, but if you think about the World Series, right? And when the Astros were playing, you would see everyone don their Astro jersey, their Astro cap from the West Coast to the East Coast because we were united in one spirit, desiring to see the Astros take it home and to take it back. And the same way Paul was united in spirit with the Colossians, saying that even though I may not be there, we are united in our faith in Christ, that I'm able to speak into your life. And that we need to invite people not only just to confront sin, that when we commit sin, we confess it, but we need people to help us know how to face sin. That when we are tempted, when we are struggling, people to exhort us, to encourage us in how we ought to walk and believe that Jesus is enough especially in moments when we believe that what we do is not enough, that we need to do more, that we need to pray more, study our Bibles more, go to church more, and thinking that if we do these things, we can cover up our sins and God will finally accept us, and we need someone to speak into our lives and say that Jesus is enough, that God has forgiven you. Walk in him. Now, now not only should you invite this accountability, but you should also invite the church to serve as your accountability partner as well. That if you have attended this church for four, maybe six, or even months, weeks, that invite us in to become accountability partners with you as well through membership. That we would covenant together in relationship that we as church elders and church ministers and church pastors would walk with you in your spiritual life, to remind you that Jesus is enough. Another thing that we ought to think about in terms of how we can believe that Jesus is enough is by memorizing the Apostles' Creed. Now, why would you say, well, why did you choose a creed as a means to apply this particular truth? Well, look at with me at verse 6 through 7. It says this, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Now, this idea of as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, it may seem to indicate this idea of belief that you placed your faith in Christ. But it's actually more than that, that when we received Christ Jesus the Lord, we not only believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, but we also received and believed all the apostolic teaching associated with Christ Jesus. And then you see this idea, these verbs, these phrases in verse 7, rooted, built up in him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. And you see this idea of being rooted, this idea of a plant drawing its riches and nutrients from the ground and unshakable. And this idea of built up as this construction. And at the middle of it all is this idea of being established in the faith just as you were taught. Taught by the apostles and by the disciples the instruction of Jesus Christ and what he has done for us. And the way that the apostolic teaching was summarized by the early church fathers was through a creed. 
The most well-known creeds are the Nicene Creed as well as the Apostles' Creed. And the purpose of the creed and to be able to memorize these things about Jesus Christ was to help believers defend their faith, to know that anyone or anything that was against the creed was unorthodox, that it was heresy, that the creed served as a means to help us determine whether teaching was right or wrong. And the creed also reminds us of what Jesus Christ has done. So let me read that section of the creed for us about Jesus Christ. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended to the dead. The third day he rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. And these are truths that we need to believe in and to hold on to and to ruminate on. So what do we talk about this morning? We talked this morning about this idea of a deception. The deception that believing that Jesus is not enough. That Jesus is not enough. And the truth is, Jesus is enough. That he's sufficient. And what is our defense when people say we need to add something or do something more than just faith in Christ? We need to believe that Jesus is enough. We need to trust in it. N.T. Wright tells a story of a friend who came home as a teenager telling and announcing to his mother that he'd become a Christian. And his mom said to him, you have been brainwashed. And this friend, having a prepared response, says, if you knew what was on my brain, you would know that it needed to be washed. And I think there's this idea that our minds, our brains, have been awash with the philosophies and thoughts of this world that Jesus is not enough. And we need to be renewed in our minds with this understanding that Jesus is enough. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the blessing that we have in Christ. May you forgive us when we don't realize the sufficiency of Jesus Christ in our lives, that we try and strive for the things of this world, thinking that they will fulfill this ache that is in us, this desire to be more when we already have so much. I pray that your Spirit will remind us of this truth, that even though the world may say Jesus is not enough, that we know from your word that Jesus is sufficient, and that you would help us believe in that truth and to live it out in our lives. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.